Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to spend some time looking to Scripture, and I pray that you'd speak to us and encourage us and challenge us uh, this time. And we pray for every need that's represented in this room, as well as those who we know outside of this room. We pray that you would provide and give grace and do all the things that you need to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, since the beginning of January, we've been in a sermon series called Engaged. And what we've been doing is we've been talking about different ways to be engaged in the kingdom. And some of the ways that we've, we've been thinking about this has to do with like engaging with people, being more engaged with people. We've also talked about being more engaged in prayer. We've talked about being more engaged in, in um, centering our lives around Jesus and then we've kind of been getting around this idea or kind of skirting around the idea of serving. Being, being involved in serving is another way to be engaged. But we, we've, what we've been doing is we've been spending time in John chapter 4, the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. And we've been reading that scripture. We've been kind of camping out on it, we've said. And so we're going to do that today. We're going we're gonna to read verses 25 through 42, and then we're going to spend some time talking about what it means to be engaged a bit more. But before we do that, just think about that word engaged and, and being engaged in the kingdom. Um, think about, you know, how do you evaluate your level of engagement? Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, how am I doing? Like, every, every new year, we always try to take some time to think about what our relationship with Jesus looks like. And I oftentimes think about like, am I closer to Jesus now than I was a year ago or a couple days ago or, you know, whenever. Um, but I think engagement is one of the things that also helps us evaluate where we're at. And so how engaged we are is an actually helpful question. Because I think oftentimes we think about our relationship with Jesus in a lot of different ways. But what I think the thrust of the Bible is encouraging us to is to be centered on Jesus is that Jesus, our relationship to Jesus is central to everything we say, do, or think. Does that make sense? Like, oftentimes I think we think of it in a pyramid pyramid form, like God, you know, country, family, or, you know, all those different ways people think about it. But really, the best way to think about our faith is to have Jesus at the center of a circle, right? And so all the different things that we do, all the different parts of your identity, everything's centered on Jesus. So, for example... Um, my name is Luke, and I'm 43 years old, and I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a really terrible brother, if you ask my sisters, I'm a cousin, I'm a friend, I'm a pastor, I love fly fishing, there's all these different things that are part of my identity, and all of those different components of who I am need to be centered on Jesus, and the same thing is true for you. All the different things that you do need to be centered on Jesus. And so oftentimes when it comes to Jesus, I think it's important for us to wrestle with the question of whether or not we center our lives on Jesus or perhaps at times our faith is more centered on convenience. And I, I see that all the time in people's, people's discipleship. I mean, I've seen this you know, hundreds and hundreds of times is that when we start going through really challenging things, we start asking questions about Jesus. And that's, that's good, right? Like if you ever go through a crisis, who can help you through that crisis? 
Jesus, right? And the church community can be there for you. But like part of following Jesus is that no matter whether we're in a crisis or not, we still want to center our, ourselves on Jesus. Amen? And so that's what we've been talking about quite a bit here. So I want to read from John chapter 4, verses 25 through 42, and listen uh, to this story here. So far, what we've had is Jesus has been traveling, and he goes to the Samaritan village. It's the short, shortest way to go where he's going. He goes there. His disciples go into town. He hangs out at this well. And as he's sitting there, a woman, a Samaritan woman, comes into contact with him and they have a conversation and Jesus is able to know things about her that he couldn't have known unless the Holy Spirit had revealed them to her, to him. And so this is where we find ourselves. John chapter four, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. He is the savior of the world. So this text of scripture, I think, is pretty interesting, as we've been saying. I mean, in many ways, John chapter 4 could be a place that we hang out for a very long time because there's so many different threads, themes about Jesus and about discipleship that are happening in this text. And in the passage we just read in verses 34 through 38, there's two things that I think are really intricately connected that we should spend some time thinking about this morning. And the two things are this. Harvest and nourishment. Jesus talks about harvest and nourishment. Now, the first thing is, did you all see Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful? He's saying, hey, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. This is something that Jesus also says in Luke chapter 10 when he says the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Listen to that again. The harvest is plentiful. It's great but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord 
who is in charge of the harvest, ask him to send more workers into his fields. And this is a tremendous statement by Jesus, I think, because when Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, he intends for us to realize that God is at work in the world around us. I've shared this many times, but for most of my Christian life, I honestly um, felt so much pressure to know all of the right answers for everything. And I know many of you feel the same way, like when you're talking to your family and friends and they're asking questions about Jesus or the kingdom or the Bible. Do you know what I'm talking about where you all of a sudden just like totally freeze? It's like, oh man, I don't know the right answers. Or is that just me? Some of you, right? It's like overwhelming and like they'll ask really hard questions. And we have this idea in our minds that we have to have it all worked out. We have to know all the answers We have to know the Bible from A to Z, or Genesis to Revelation. And we put this pressure on ourselves. And I I lived like that for many years where I, I I would read all these different books and try to know as much as I could. And I always felt like I didn't really know enough to be able to really engage with people about Jesus or the kingdom. But listen to this. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. God is at work in the world around us. And that was extremely transformative for me when I one day just realized that people's coming to faith was not 100% contingent on me knowing all the right answers. It's like, oh my gosh, you, you want to know why that's true? Is because God is at work in the world around us. Like we don't know the seeds that are being planted in people's lives apart from us. Amen? We just have to know that the harvest is plentiful and then we need to join the labor force. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. And this is really comforting because like we all probably can think of somebody that we think is outside the bounds of God's salvation because they're freaking jerks. That's maybe just my way of putting it. But do you know what I mean? Like there's people that we would say there's no way that they'll ever become a follower of Jesus because They're so dot, dot, dot. And I I know we're all guilty of this. We have people that we put into this category of being unable to really come to a place of knowing Jesus because they're either so mean, they're so aggressive, they're so, you know, crusty, whatever words you want to use. But here's what we need to realize is that these type of people are precisely the type of people who Jesus goes after. And oftentimes in the scriptures, we see those are the type of people that choose to pick up their mat and follow Jesus. And so we see hardened and difficult people come to faith all the time. And I can tell you story after story of people who I assumed on the outward that there was no way they would ever become a follower of Jesus. But when they experienced grace for the first time, everything changed. Everything changed. So the second thing that Jesus does here, he says that the harvest is plentiful, but then he attaches his own nourishment. It's attached to obedience. He says that by being obedient to the will of God, he is being nourished, right? The disciples are trying to figure out like, hey, what did he eat? What, do you need some food? Jesus, your blood sugar looks like it might be a little low. Might want to eat something. And he says, listen, I have been nourished in a way that you do not understand. This is how Kenneth Bailey explains this text. He says, The woman comes seeking well water and carries divine living water with her back to the village. Did you catch that? 
She came looking for water, but she goes back carrying living water. But before she leaves the well, the disciples return bringing human food from the village, only to discover that Jesus has been renewed by divine food that they as yet do not adequately understand. It is the sustaining nourishment received when one is engaged in fulfilling the will of God and accomplishing his task. So here's what I think that Jesus is getting to here. Is he saying that when we when we center our lives on Jesus and we begin to live our lives for purpose, the purpose of the kingdom, we begin to A, learn most about our own identity, but we also experience fulfillment. We actually experience fulfillment. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a Bible study and, and the conversation started, um, we started talking about Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Now, if you've ever been to a funeral, you will have heard Ecclesiastes chapter 3, because Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is the text where it says that there's a time for war, there's a time for love, there's a time for this, there's a time for that, and that's one of the main texts. But it's really interesting, because when you get to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, one of the things that the author of this passage says is he says, God has made everything beautiful for its own time. God has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. And this idea of eternity being planted in your heart is really kind of a weird statement in that flow of Scripture. But what the author is basically saying is he goes on to say, listen, this is why human beings will work 24-7 365. They will spend all this energy and try to do all that they can to accomplish all these tasks, but they're all meaningless if they're detached from eternal purposes. And so the the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to say, listen, God put something inside of every single human being. He put eternity. He put a value for things that go beyond the natural world that we live in. And until you connect with that reality, you will be you will be hungry and dissatisfied. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, listen, my nourishment does not come from bread. My nourishment comes from doing the will of God. Every time I do the will of God, when I carry out my purposes, I am fed. And I think that's super relevant for us in our lives too. Because I really do believe that that God has planted things in each one of us. And until we discover our purpose and the gifting we have, and the abilities that we have, and how that fits into the kingdom of God, we're just kind of frustrated or confused. And so I want to be really clear here. The answer is not, God's put eternity in you, and you're all supposed to be pastors. Okay? Because I used to think that when I was growing up. I was like, oh, the, like, the, like if I become a real serious follower of Jesus, i got to be a pastor, and that's like the worst job ever. I don't believe that now. Okay? But I remember wrestling with that. And this is, this is even better than that. What, what I think the Bible teaches is that every single one of us has a place in the kingdom and that all of us, no matter what our vocation or our calling is, it can fit into those, those kingdom activities. Because if we were all pastors, there would be nobody to buy tacos from. Right? Right? Or there'd be nobody to go and get your your tires replaced or whatever it is that you do. And that's the thing. We need to see our vocations, our lives as being centered on Jesus and the kingdom. 
And when we do those things for the glory of God and the well-being of people, it fits into the kingdom's engagement. Amen? And so that's what we have to see ourselves. And that's why the question is, I think more so, in relation to the way I'm living my life, am I living my life where I'm being obedient to Jesus and I'm centering myself on Jesus and his kingdom, not at a convenience, but, but really valuing those things. And if you are, then what Jesus is saying is that you will be fulfilled. You will find your purpose. You will not go hungry. So there's something else that I think that's going on in this text that I find really fascinating is that we seem to, we seem to get the, the feeling from this text that the Samaritan woman has a progressive understanding of who Jesus is. Okay. In fact, when she first meets with him, she's kind of like, why are you talking to me? You're a Pharisee. Oh, you're a prophet? Well, okay. And, and she has this progressive revelation. So here's the thing. The Samaritan people as a whole were expecting their Messiah to be two things, a prophet and a teacher. That's it. So the whole entire Samaritan religion was based on this idea that, that the Messiah would be a good teacher and would give them prophetic revelation. But what we see is that as the woman discovers who Jesus is, she comes to see that Jesus is far more than a prophet and a teacher. In fact, what we, what we see is that the Samaritans come to see Jesus as the Savior of the world. Now, this word discovery is really important, though. Because did you catch that at the very end of the text? The Samaritans said, listen, we don't believe just because of what you said, we have come to see Jesus for who he is ourselves. Did you all see that? And I think that's really important. I mean, from, from being a parent to a friend to whatever you are, if you're trying to help people come to faith in Jesus, I think the important thing that we do is we position people to discover who Jesus is for themselves. Like we have to keep pushing people to Jesus each of our interactions and engagements can help people, I think, see little pictures into who Jesus is. Because who Jesus is, as we come to know him, he gets better and better and better. I had a friend um, who I went to Kenya with uh, the first time I ever went. It's like 2010 maybe. And, and we went on this mission trip and we were totally new to missions, just like Krista had shared like I hadn't gone on them. I had no idea what to expect. And, you know, it was a lot of unexpected things and learning to be flexible and like, hey, Luke, you're going to preach in 15 minutes for 10,000 people. Like, oh, what? And things like that happened over and over again. And, and so we ended up doing this big, like, crusade where we were preaching the gospel and sharing about Jesus and, and like thousands of people in this slum came forward to, to accept Jesus and I had a chance to walk down the stairs off the stage and pray for this, this guy with a friend of mine named Chris. And so he walked over and there's this Kenyan man and he's just sobbing, like sobbing uncontrollably, you know, just overwhelmed with emotion. And, you know, and I'm, I mean, the pastoral heart is like, oh my gosh, I just want to hug this man, like and make him feel better. And I'm like trying to comfort him. And he's just like, I am so broken. He was, he was telling us how he, he's a sinner. And, and my friend Chris, who's just listening to him and just rubbing his shoulder, he's just like, oh yeah, it's actually way worse than that. You're worse than you even realize. And I was like, <laughs> and this man though, just was like, I know. And just, 
overwhelmed. And, and then my friend Chris started to share the gospel with him. He's like, yeah, it's as bad as you say and even worse. Like you, you don't deserve God's grace. You are, you're a sinner, just like all of us. You are, as Paul says, you are dead in the trespasses of your sins. But God is so rich in mercy that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that man, he gave his life to Jesus. And it was really neat because over the next maybe 10 trips, uh, many of them I would see this man because what he ended up doing is joining this ministry. And, and over the years, he kept growing closer to Jesus, volunteering in the local church. Um, he just kept moving further and further toward the, G, toward the kingdom. And, and it all started, though, with him having an awareness of who Jesus was. But this last time I was in Kenya, I had a chance, or two times ago, I had a chance to sit down and meet with him over coffee. And this is what he said. He's like 10 years now into following Jesus. He, he said, I totally remember that time when I heard, I heard the message of Jesus for the first time. But he says, as I've gotten to know Jesus more and more, he's better every single day. And I think that's what following Jesus is about, is learning that the more that we center our lives on Jesus, the more we discover who Jesus is, the more that we realize that he is far more gracious, far more merciful, far more loving than we could ever imagine. And that's why I think many of us want to live our lives for him. So we see this in, in Ephesians chapter 1, by the way, where Paul is trying to encourage the church of Ephesus to know Jesus more, and he prays this prayer, is that you might grow in your knowledge of God. And that's what I think um, the church is supposed to be about. We're supposed to be engaged in our faith so we can help other people learn more about Jesus. Let's go ahead and stand up. So here's kind of what I, I want to pray for for a moment is is the idea of discipleship. Like, I'm constantly thinking about discipleship in my own life, in the life of our church. And what that means is us being shaped and formed into the image of Jesus. So Jesus says, go and make disciples, right? What he says is, go and make disciples. We're all supposed to be about making disciples. But how many of you would agree that you can't make disciples if you aren't a disciple? Amen? Like, you can't go and make something that you aren't. And so we have to be first and foremost concerned with, am I being a follower of Jesus, a disciple? And if I am, then we begin the task of, of helping other people become disciples. And, and so I've been thinking a lot about that. Because with a discipleship, it seems like there's two approaches. And I've had this conversation with like 9 million people in the last two weeks, so I think there's something on this. But a lot of people have this assumption that in order to become a disciple, you have to immediately know everything about Jesus and be like perfect. You know, it's like, and I hear people say all the time, well, I'm not ready for that, you know, because, man, if I came to your church, the walls would fall down. And I'm always like, you don't know who already goes to our church. <laughs> like, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> I'm not judging anybody. I'm just saying that, there's a lot of grace, right? And, and, but that's the whole point. It's like, listen, let me tell you about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is, is far different than the world. And one of the primary ways we see that is the kingdom is all about grace. 
It's all about grace. And it's always inviting us to move closer to Jesus and to center our lives on Jesus. And so I, I think there's two approaches to discipleship oftentimes. One's like the legalistic way where it's like the Pharisees, like you need to memorize everything and dress a certain way and do all the right things. And if you don't, you're out. But then there's the way that I think we see modeled with the, the Samaritan woman, where it's like she progressively, through the process of discovering Jesus, she progressively comes to see Jesus for who he is. And then she goes out and tells her whole entire village, like, come and see the one who's changed my life. And so discipleship really is about, I think, entering into the process of being centered on Jesus and the kingdom. So this whole entire sermon series, we've been pressing into this idea of being more engaged. So I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes right now. And I'm going to tell you right now that I am 150 million percent, which is a lot, convinced that our church community has a purpose in Red Bluff. And I'm even more convinced that I love Red Bluff and I want to be here for the rest of my life, unless the Lord calls me to Alaska <laughs> for the summers, for the summers. But what I'm saying is that we have, a, we have a purpose. And until you all discover your purpose and take steps of faith and begin to become more engaged, we're hamstrung a little bit. That's just the reality. You just need to know that. So like when we say, hey, how many people are serving in the kids' church and one person set stands up? There's a problem, folks. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to seriously, not just I'll pray about it. It's like I, that answer is so cheesy sometimes. Like, hey, do you want to serve? Let me pray about it. You have to pray about serving? Well, that seems weird. What I want you to do is to pray about, God, where do I fit? What are my gifts? What are my passions? What are, my, what are the things that you have put inside of my heart that I need to be doing? And if you would just take a risk and step forward and start serving in that area, I guarantee you that you will see things in the kingdom that you could never imagine. And you will find nourishment just like Jesus found nourishment. And so, Father, I pray that as we are, are standing here and just waiting for your Holy Spirit for a moment, that as we stand here in silence, that you would speak to us. Lord, I have, I have nothing but confidence to know that you desire to speak to your people, that you are a relational God who longs to be in communication with your people. And so as we stand here listening for you, Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us, and to show us how we fit in the community of your kingdom, the church.